So we're continuing our series on the Trinity that we've been in, and what we've been learning is the oneness of God is not a solitary, alone one, right? That God exists in a community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a community of perfect love. And as we've been talking the last few weeks, that God exists as the model community, that really all human relationships, all things related to living well, He models that for us, especially for those who came, claim to follow Jesus. Um, that we learn from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, how we're to live, how we're to really live. And so I want to continue pressing into this idea of the model community. Um, last fall, I did a series on work. And I started that series by looking at God as the exemplar of work, um, as our model in regards to that. There's always a person or two who's like, I didn't hear that and I want to hear it. It was October 30th of 2022, if, if that's what you'd like to do. I want to give you a really brief review. Because I started that series by asking a couple, three questions. What does the Bible say about work? How should we think biblically about work? And how, more importantly, how do we connect our work with our faith? How do we connect those two? And if you remember in that first series, that first sermon, what we did is we started in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to look at God as a worker. And isn't it crazy how this whole series, we looked at the Trinity, every week we're starting in Genesis 1 and 2. Because that is the chapters that lays the foundation of understanding who God is and, and the the whole story, the whole story of the Bible. And so in those first two chapters, we see God's creation, strategically uh, how he, he built everything. So in chapter one is the creation of the whole universe and of the earth and of everything on it. And then in, with the climax of that being the creation of humankind, and then chapter two goes into more detail on his creation of humankind and of his creation of their garden home where they would live. And here's what we learned in those first two chapters of Genesis when I did that, that God is a worker, and that's, that's actually very significant. If you remember, which probably you don't, which is fine, what we saw was in Genesis 1 and 2, there were seven different Hebrew words all related to work and how much a worker God really is. Two of them, Yatsar, kind of in the middle, the third one, that he, took, that he formed and fashioned just as a potter does. And that last one, Melakaz, to work as a craftsman or as an artisan. So God truly is a worker. <coughs> Excuse me. And what I'm amazed at is he does both white and blue-collar work in Genesis 1 and 2. He got his hands dirty because he formed as a potter the first man from the, the clay of the ground, the dirt of the earth. And what that tells me is um, all work, even physical labor, is God's work. All of it. That there is... Uh, no task that's menial, what, that humans would call menial work to God, none of it's menial. And we could say, we learned in that chapter, if you remember, I talked about that we could say God wears both a blue collar and a white collar. In chapter one, he does that creative work, um, that creative knowledge type of work in Genesis 2. He does that creative hands-on type of work, manual labor. So it all matters to God. And in Genesis 1, we see the work of two of the members of the Trinity. We looked at this last week, but I want to hit it again. In Genesis 1.1, we see the Father at work in creation, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then in Genesis 1.2, we see the Spirit. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And we talked about this last week, but we also know Jesus was involved in creation, Hebrews 1, 2, speaking of Jesus, says, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he, the Father, made the universe. So the whole Trinity is involved in that initial creative act, the whole Trinity. 
And then after that creation of Genesis 1, that general account, chapter 2 starts this way. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he shavated, that's the Hebrew, rested, it says in, in the English, from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because, of, because on it he shavated, rested, it says, from all the work of creating he had done. In Hebrew, shavat doesn't mean rest. It just means to cease and to stop. So he ceased and stopped, okay? He didn't need to rest like he was pretty winded after all that, okay? Um, so here's what we see. After God creates all of creation in chapter 1, and he looks at it and he says, awesome, right? Which is my translation, Genesis 1.31. This is really, really good. This is very good. After that, God ceases from his work, we're told in Genesis 2. And so here's the question I want to ask. After his creating work, after his creating work, did God stop working altogether? Did he stop working altogether? Did he just sit back in his easy chair, and has he been binging Netflix for all of the rest of time? Um, as the deists think, that he set the universe spinning, and then he's left it alone just to operate as things happen with him not being involved. And I think we know the answer to that, but I want to delve into what Scripture says, because it's quite clear that God has not stopped working. Uh, in Genesis 5.17, Jesus says this, he, of my father. He says, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working, that interworking of the Trinity. So to answer this question, did God stop his work? I'd like you to turn to Psalm chapter 104, book of Psalm. If the Bible's still kind of new to you, it's in the very middle, almost the middle, kind of to the left, chapter 104. This is a great Psalm. If you, I know some of you have Bibles that have note space in the margin. If you're a note taker, this is a great Psalm to take a few notes in your Bible. Because in this Psalm, we're going to learn about two major kinds of works that God does. We're going to see His initial creating work, but we're also going to see God's ongoing caring for His creation, that kind of work. And I want to do a quick overview of this Psalm, because in this Psalm, this is what it looks like. This is the structure. You know, if you want this later, I can send this to you because it's too fast to write, I know. But in this psalm, the first few verses, 1 to 4, is an introductory praise. It ends with a concluding praise in verses 33 to 35. And then between that, in the heart of the psalm, he bounces back and forth between God's initial creating work and his ongoing caring of his creation. And then in verses 24 and 27, he has a brief pause. He gives a reflection on the overall works of God. And in verses 31 to 33, he has a response to the overall works of God. So that's kind of the structure. So I'd like to read through this psalm. We won't do it as a congregation, but I would like you to stand with your Bible. If you have a phone, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Psalms are tricky in different translations. So if you have your phone, you might want to check, click the NIV to follow along. So I start with the introductory praise in Psalm chapter 104. We're starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot, and he rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. And now in verse 5, we're going to shift into his initial creating work. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. 
They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. And you set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Now the author is going to shift into the ongoing work of God's care of creation in verses 10 to 14. Verse 10, he makes, see the present tense shift? He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bringing food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax, or we could say uh, the bighorn sheep of Colorado, right? Um, Now he goes back to the initial work of God creating in one verse, verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons and the sun's when to go down. And now we're going to be back to his ongoing work of caring for creation, verses 20 to 23. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. (laughs) Then people go out to their work, to their labor, until evening. And now the next three verses is a reflection on the overall works of God, 24 to 26. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. I love that word, frolic. Now he's going to go back to his ongoing creation care, verses 27 to 30. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And now the author has this response to the works of God. I love this, verses 31 and 32. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. And then he wraps it all up with a concluding praise, verses 33 to 35. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. Would you say those last two lines with me? Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. In this psalm, six verses are devoted to God's initial act of creation. Seventeen verses are are devoted to His ongoing work of care for His creation, nearly three times as much. And I kind of asked the question, why? And it's because here's what I think. Genesis 1 and 2 talk a lot about that initial creation. We have a very rich theology of that from Genesis 1 and 2. But I think here God is wanting to reveal to us his work of his ongoing care of creation. So that's why, to me, Psalm 104 is a great companion text of Genesis 1 and 2. And so since this is the author's purpose, is God's ongoing work of caring for creation, I want to speak to that this morning. 
Um, we learn from this psalm that God does not just simply create and then take a break. He actually loves, cares for, and He nurtures His creation. He didn't stop working the end of Genesis 2. Rather, He continues His work as the provider by caring for His world. Theologians have a word for this. They call it God's providential care, His providential care. There are two companion texts in the Psalms to this um, that I want to share with you. One is Psalm 145, 9 and 15 and 16, and here's what it reads. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Psalm 65, 8 to 13, it says, the whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders, where morning dawns, where evening fades. You call forth songs of joy. You care. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain so that, so for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers, bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. So we have this this providential care of God. And contained with that, an important idea that came out of the Reformation that the Protestants developed is that a subset of God's providential care is what has been called God's common grace. And His common grace is His grace and care that's directed specifically to humanity towards all people, towards all people, um, so that all humanity can experience His blessings, goodness, and benefit. Paul references God's common grace in Acts chapter 14. Listen for a minute to verse 15. I'm going to show you verse 17. He's speaking to the people of Lystra and Derby, and he says, we're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from those worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Yet, he has not left himself without a witness. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food, and he fills your hearts with joy. And I want you to know the Bible's clear. This common grace of God is available to everyone. It does not matter their spiritual condition. It doesn't matter they're bent towards God or they're bent against Him. And Jesus spoke to this Himself when He said in Matthew 5, a passage I think we all know, 43 to 45, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now back to Psalm 104. In this psalm and two companion psalms, I see several important details. There's some jewels in here I want to dig out, okay? So I want to press into it. First in Psalm 104, we see God's rich, abundant provision. We see His abundance in His provision. Look at verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are well watered. The, seeds, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. If you drop down to his reflection on the overall works of God in verse 25, he says this. There is the sea, vast and spacious, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. And Psalm 65 really amplifies this idea where it says in verses 9 and then 10 and 11, 
He says, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, so you have, for so you have ordained it. And then in verses 11 and 12 of that chapter, he says, you crown the year with your bounty. Your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands and the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. So I want you to know, in God's care of creation, he does it with generous abundance, with generous abundance. And that's why, as His people, who are meant to reflect and image Him to all of creation, we are called to be people of generous abundance, of abundant generosity. We're called to be that, because when we do that, we reflect Him. That's why we give, okay? We don't give because I have to. I give because I want to, because I've received His abundant love and care, and I want to be generous with the things that I have. That's why we give. So I want to take a minute, and this is kind of maybe a generosity moment in the middle of the sermon, but I want you to reflect for a minute prayerfully before the Lord, and just before Him, ask the question, do I reflect your generosity to others, or am I stingy with what I have? So take a minute, just go to the Lord in prayer for that, with that, about that. Lord, help all of us to be more generous and to reflect who you are to a watching world. Okay, so God's intent, I want to show you his intent with this loving abundance of provision. He did it so that his creation would flourish. That's the second jewel I see here. It's his desire for his whole creation to flourish. In particular, humanity, but I want you to know his whole creation. So I want to start in this psalm first with creational flourishing, the creation as a whole. Look at, if you look at verses thir- verse 13 of Psalm 104, it says, He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. In Psalm 65, 12, and 13, it says, The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks. The valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Now, if we were to zoom in from creation as a whole into creatures, the animals that God has created, here's what he says in verses 24 to 28 of Psalm 104. He says, how many are your works, Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. And here's what Psalm 145, 15 to 16 says about God in relation to his creatures. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And then if we zoom in even more, 
on human flourishing, verses 14 to 15, key verses to me in this whole psalm that we're going to come back to in a minute. Verses 14 and 15, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. Wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. We could add to that the words of Acts 14, 17, which we just read. He provides you with plenty of food, and He fills your hearts with joy. Are those not great words? God's desire for us to flourish. So I want you to know from this psalm, I learned that in regards to every single thing He made, every single thing that He made... His desire for all of His creation in His provision is that we would find satisfaction, gladness, joy, and radiance. Is that not powerful? He wants us and all of creation to flourish. And so that verse we saw earlier, Psalm 145, 9, it really is true. I didn't doubt it, but the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that He has made. So why this caring, this providing abundantly, this desire for everything He created to flourish? And I would say it's this, the third jewel that I find, because God delights in His creation. He delights in it. Look at verse 31, verse 31, where the psalmist writes, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works May he rejoice in his works. I don't have time to do it this morning. If you're a note taker, write Proverbs chapter 8, verses 27 to 31, where God talks quite extensively that at creation, and there's a hint that the, sun, the, the son's involvement there, that at creation, how much God delighted in all that he was creating. So he delights in all of it. Okay, now that's all great and good, but we're in a series on the Trinity, right? So where's the Trinity in all of this? in this ongoing providential care of His creation. So, look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. There it says, when you send your spirit, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Do you remember last week, we learned about the Holy Spirit, one of His lead roles is He regenerates and renews the human heart. And here we see He not only renews the human heart, He renews the face of the ground of creation. Isn't that cool? In Job chapter 26, 13, it says this, His Spirit made the heavens beautiful. So the Spirit makes creation come alive with beauty. And if you remember from last week, I talked about that the Spirit is the one who like brings life to everything and kind of makes everything music, if you remember that. Well, we could also say this, that the Father is the architect who plans it, the Son is the builder who carries it out, and this Holy Spirit is the interior decorator who gives all of it life and brings flourishing and beauty to all of it. That's His role. But what about Jesus? Because I don't see Him. Trust me, I've been looking. I don't see Him in Psalm 104. Uh, you know, like most of the Old Testament, the Father is prominent. The Spirit talked about occasionally, Jesus the Messiah is hinted at. So 104 doesn't mention Him specifically, but I want to show you Psalm 36, 5 to 6. It's a really important passage. And here it says this, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, you preserve both people and animals. Part of His ongoing care is He preserves both people and animals. So part of God's ongoing work of caring for His creation is, pre is preserving and sustaining His creation. 
So with that in mind, look at what Paul says in Colossians 1, 16 to 17 of Jesus, that in him all things were created, past tense, that initial creation, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created, past tense, through him and for him. He is before him, he is before all things, and in him all things, present tense, hold together. All things hold together. And Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So even though we don't see Him explicitly in Psalm 104, I want you to know Jesus has also been active since the creation of everything. He has been at work sustaining and preserving everything. And so here's what I think is so cool about all of this is that we see Father, Son, and Spirit all at work, not only involved in that, act, that initial work of creating, but involved in this ongoing work of caring for His creation. Which takes me back to my initial question, which is, did God just initially create and stop working? And the answer to that is a resounding no. He works to this very day. The triune God continues to be at work in His creation, lovingly caring for it to this very day. Okay, there's one more jewel in here that I found so profound that I want to show you, and it's where it starts to get practical, okay? And so here's the question. Does God act alone in this work of caring for His creation? Does He just do this all by Himself? You know, Psalm 104 is clear that He feeds everything, and that's part of His caring. It's referenced in verses 10 and 11, 20 and 21, 27 and 28. But the question is, is he alone in that work? Does he just do that by himself? And the answer is found in those profound verses 14 and 15. So go back to that, 14 and 15, where it says, he makes the grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. So God makes plants for what purpose? For what purpose? For people to cultivate. For people to cultivate. And not just cultivate, but to actually take that things they cultivate and to make goods and things that actually lead to the flourishing of other human beings and other creatures, right? Um, Things like wine, oil, and bread. That's what it says. Now, tell me, does God make the wine, the oil, and the bread? I know it's like a tricky question. It's like Karen's trying to trick me. First, I would say no, right? I would say no. It's humans who actually make those things. It's humans who take the grapes after they've cultivated them and planted them the way that they do, because I've never done it, so I just say the way they do. I don't know what they do. And then they, they press them, and then they, they ferment them, and we get wine. And how they take the olives, and they grow those intentionally. They cultivate, and then they crush them, and they, they, they pull the oil out of it through crushing. Or the grain, they grow the grain in rows with intentionality, right? And they take the grain, and they harvest it, and they grind it, and they add other ingredients, and they bake bread. So God's like, that's human work. But I would also say, does God create wine, oil, and bread? I would also say Yes which I know some of you were kind of saying, like that's the biblical answer, right? Yes. In a sense, God does make wine, oil, and bread because He's the ultimate producer of grain, fruit, and vegetables. And that old Jewish prayer that is so well shown in the chosen where they pray, "Thank, blessed are you, O God, before having their wine in a meal. Blessed are you, creator of the vine. Okay? That ultimately God is the provider of that. 
Look at what Isaiah 28, 24 to 25 and verse 28 says about this. When a farmer plows for planting, does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? When he's leveled the surface, does he not plant wheat in his place? Grain must be ground to make bread. The wheels of a threshing cart are rolled over it. Verse 29, all this comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful and whose wisdom is magnificent. So even in this, God's ultimately behind it. Here's what I want you to see. That in all of that, we have a very real part. A very real part. God does not do it alone. Without human work, no food would appear on the table. There'd be no good services to meet human needs. If, if God's like, I'm just going to do it all by myself. That's not how he does it, right? Um, through far, not just human needs, but through farms all across Kansas. For people who work at Simmons and Hills, God is using humans to provide for even the pets and the animals that we love. So in the Bible, here's what you see. You see this amazing partnership between God and humans in his ongoing work. He created humans to work alongside him, partnering with God in his ongoing work of creation care. He, decided, he created us to partner with him. And that means our work, my work, is an extension of God's providential care. It's an extension of what he's doing. And this is part of the way he shows deference to us. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. Because he, again, gives us the causality of dignity that he allows us to be involved in being a part of his provision of everything. He uses the labor, frequently, the labor of humans to help all this happen. And that means I am called to create and to produce things for the flourishing of humanity and for all of creation, that we are all made to work just as the Creator works, the Trinitarian God. And this is one of the ways we image Him. When we do the work we are called to do, we are working with Him in His providential care of everything. And that's part of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.26. I want you to know, when you show up at work in whatever form, you are embodying God in His ongoing care of creation. Is that not significant? You're embodying Him. Martin Luther was the reformer who wrote the, who wrote the most about partnering with God through our work. And he said God easily could have made it, that just stuff showed up on the table, right? Just miraculously. But that that was not his desire. And he says that God feeds us through the farmer, through the local co-op, through the truck driver who delivers it, through the retailer, through the, um, the baker, through the cook who does things and puts it on our table. That He works through all of those people to help, part, help in this creation care. Luther even says, I really love this, he says, the, the humblest farm girl, the humblest farm girl participates with God in his providential care. He said, God milks the cows through the vocation of milkmaids. Isn't that cool? He chose to milk cows through milkmaids. And that's why Luther called us the fingers of God. We're the fingers of God. And that's why, back to this psalm, verses 22 and 23, I just love this. It says, the sun rises and they steal away, they return and they lie down in their dens. Then people go out to their work, to their labor, until evening. Because all work is partnering with God to bestow the blessings of God on others and on all of creation. That's what work is. Um, I want you to know this view of work was, it still is, revolutionary. It's revolutionary. That we worship a God who rolls up his sleeves and work. That's the kind of God that we worship. He was hard at work in the act of creation. He works to this very day in caring for his creation 
unlike the aloof, uncaring, uninvolved gods of most of, if not all, of the ancient religions and worldviews, this is a God who loves and cares for what He made. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, all involved in this ongoing work of creation, and He created us to work along with Him, imaging Him back to creation. I hope you realize how high of a calling this is, our work. I hope you realize that. I mean, do you see why I quote every week St. Augustine when he said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable? And that's why I've been saying that the whole fabric of the universe is Trinitarian in nature and that the Trinity applies to so much of my real life, my practical life, so many levels. And so I want to end with this, that if God works and if He continues to work, And if God invites us to join Him in that work, that means that all work has dignity. All work has dignity. I don't care what it is. Okay, there's some forms of work. I don't think anybody in here participates in some of those, okay? But I think all of the work represented here, it all has dignity. Work, it was not, it is not beneath God, and work is not beneath me. It's not beneath us. And I want you to know what I love of this is he worked for the sheer joy of it. And so should we. We should work for the sheer joy of it. So 12th, I remind you, your work matters to God. It matters to God. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And equally importantly, God matters to your work. He matters to your work. So I want to Go back and finish up with Isaiah chapter 28, verses 24 and 25, and then verse 26, where it says, when a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? Does he not plant wheat in its place? And then he says this in verse 26, his God instructs him and teaches him the right way. So I want you to know, God wants to meet you in your work. He wants to meet you there. He wants to partner with you there. He doesn't want you to do it alone. He wants you to do it with Him by your side. And that means staying vitally connected to Him, that I'm in the Word, I'm in prayer, I am abiding in Him, because only when I abide in Him will His fruit come through me into my work, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control, right? That's the only way those things can, can get into my work. And so here's my challenge, two things as we wrap up, two things. Number one, stay connected to Him. He's the source of all life. So keep walking with Him. You need Him in your work to do it well. But secondly, my challenge to you this week is seek with intentionality this week, every day when you go to work, to connect your work with God's work, all of it. As you go to work this week, or some of you, as you stay at home because your work is at home, okay, but as you're at your work this week, I want you to do so with a deep sense of the purpose and the meaning of your work, that you are partnering with God in His ongoing care of creation, and that means you do your work with gusto and with joy, with gusto and with joy, just as He does His, no matter the job, no matter the job. I talked a couple of months ago about vocation, and the reality is that some of us, there are people here who are like, I'm not living in a thing. I think God's created me because that happens with all of us. There's times where I'm waiting. I'm, I'm doing a job. I maybe feel like I'm not created for, but it doesn't matter. It's part of God's ongoing creation care, and I can do it, and I can do it well. I can partner with Him, and I do it with joy. I can do it with joy. So, because we're imaging Him, we're imaging Him to a watching world. That's what we're doing. We're living as restorers, joining God in the restoration of all things, one person, one place at a time. 
That's what we are. Isn't that great? Is not the Bible so super practical and profound that the Trinity speaks to my work? It speaks to my work. I love the Word of God, and I love that each week we can just focus on that and bring some jewels out of it. So, I do that with great joy. Would you stand? And I'd like to pray. So what? Triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for this reality. You did not just initially create, but you were involved every day in your ongoing work of creation care. And that you do it abundantly, and you long for us to flourish, and it is your delight to work every day for us. And Lord, the fact that you ask us to partner with you in that, to me, is so amazing that you want to multiply yourself. You don't want to just keep it to yourself. So Lord, help us as your people to image you well, that we would stay connected to you, the source of our power, and that this week we would all go into our work with a sense of joy because we get to partner with you no matter what we're doing. It's important, it's significant, and we get to work with you, and there's nothing more exciting. So we pray all of this in the name of the triune God, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you probably don't hear this often at church, but 12th, you are sent to work. So, Go join God in what He's doing in the world.